0: You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website www.trinityws.com. Morning. My my name is Joan and I'll be reading from Matthew 9:35 to 38. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord. Thanks. You may be seated. Thanks, John. You can set it over there. Okay, here we go. Like Joel said, this is my first time preaching uh, a full message here at Trinity. Um, we we demonstrated some of the lessons we do for the kids this summer up here. And uh, hopefully we'll do that again more as well. Um, but this is not my first time ever preaching, so uh, hopefully that will be somewhat apparent. <laughs> uh, my, uh, I'll, I'll get into telling you about my first time preaching, but first I just, I just need to pray one more time real quick here. <laughs> God, I just pray right now that you would speak through me, Holy Spirit, that you would fill me that you would illuminate your word to all of us here, God, that you would captivate us and draw us close to you, and that you would just open up our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. When I graduated high school, I went for a year to Trinity Western University. They don't have a one-year program. I just (laughs) had this habit of getting myself into situations where I had to drop out and move repeatedly from, from colleges, but my... My year at Trinity was a good one, Um, and I was 18 when I showed up, and Trinity Western is up in in Canada, in Langley, uh, B.C., and I was up there, and it was the first time in my life I ever chose a church to go to on my own. I'd grown up in a Christian home. My dad always worked for churches and worked in ministry, so I always went to my parents' church. And so this is the first time in my life where I'm choosing do I go to church? Do I not go to church? And where do I want to go to church? And so a group of friends and I, we started attending uh, the Langley Vineyard Church. And uh, I'd never been to a vineyard church before, and they were very charismatic, right? And it was this whole new sort of world of talking about the Holy Spirit and talking about spiritual gifts that was really new to me. And I wanted to learn more about this. I started meeting with the pastor up there and um, he started, you know, inviting me to search out what might be spiritual gifts that God had put in my life and what he was calling me to. And as I started reading through them and as I started praying through them, I said to him, I said, I think I might have a spiritual gift of preaching and teaching. And he said, well, So use it. And I said, well, I don't have a congregation to preach to. I don't have anyone to preach and teach to. How do you know that? And he said, well, spiritual gifts aren't about other people and how many other people they impact. They're they're something that God has gifted you with and something that he's going to work in you through. And he told me this story about Billy Graham preaching to rocks on the beach, and just like that's how he began preaching, and he said, if you're called to preach, go preach. It doesn't matter if there are people in front of you. So the first sermon I ever preached was to a group of trees in the woods behind Trinity Western University in Langley, BC, and I picked up my notes from my quiet time, and I walked out into the woods, and I just started kind of preaching this passage from Galatians that I had been studying and this thing happened where I just felt the Holy Spirit of God fill me up. And just like as I was speaking, it became more confident and it became more natural. And then I began to explain these verses to myself in a way that I hadn't understood them when I had read them and written down these notes. And God used my own voice to speak to my own ears the truth of his word. And I just like that was just this amazing moment. And uh, so as I preach this morning, I want to have it be that moment again. I I want to ask God to just fill me up and speak through me, and you guys are just here as trees, (laughs) and I'm going to do some work with God now, (laughs) and I'll invite you to come along and ask him to speak to you as well and do some work in you, okay? Um. I also took a preaching class at Trinity and my professor told me, here's how you preach a sermon. You tell people, here's what I'm going to tell you, then you tell it to them, then you say, here's what I just told you, right? So uh, that's what we're going to do. And I bring that up for two reasons. One, I'm going I'm to follow that format, but also as we look at Matthew and as we continue in this series on the Upside Down Kingdom, as we come to the end of chapter nine of Matthew, Matthew's actually using that same format to teach us, right, is if we go back Way back before I was here at Trinity, before I was on staff, March 6th, 2021, almost two years ago, uh, Pastor Buzz preached a sermon on Matthew 4.23. And this is, this is the verse, Matthew 4.23 says, and he went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So that's Matthew 4.23. And now here we are almost two years later, and Matthew 9.35 says this, And he went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. I don't think Matthew forgot that he already wrote that down. right? What's happening here is in chapter 4, We have Matthew saying, here's what Jesus is about to do as his public ministry. He's going to go through all the towns. He's going to preach. He's going to teach. He's going to heal. And then we have Matthew 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9, what's taken us as a church two years to walk through, what, what very well might have taken Jesus two years to walk through, right? It could have taken him years to travel through all of these villages and do all of this teaching and healing. And then at the end of this... Matthew recaps, this is what Jesus did. He went through all the villages, teaching in the synagogues, preaching and teaching and healing and and all of these afflictions, right? And so it's kind of bookends to the Sermon on the Mount and his interactions with the Pharisees and these lawyers and his calling of the disciples and his healing of specific people that we've been looking at over the last weeks, right? And when you have an intro... And then, here's what Jesus did. And then you cap it with, see, I told you, this is what Jesus was going to do. And then you have this little section of three verses at the end of Matthew 9. Matthew's summing it up, right? So these next verses are Matthew summarizing the last several chapters of the book. And he summarizes it like this. When he saw the crowds... He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. When he saw the crowds as we're looking back, we're talking about crowds plural, right? The crowds in all of the different cities, the crowds in all of the synagogues, the crowd of all of the sick and the diseased and the demon-oppressed that Jesus was healing and preaching. And Matthew summarizing, when he saw all of those crowds, he had compassion for them. So Matthew sums it up by saying this, and and here's going to be my four points, okay? So I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. This is me telling you. Here's what I'm going to tell you. One, Jesus is showing us what we should see, what we should feel, what we should know, and what we should do, okay? Some alliteration, some four points, a little bit of Baptist in me, I don't know. Number one, let's look at it, what we should see. Jesus wasn't blind, so we know that Jesus physically saw the people, right? Right? But over and over and over throughout the book of Matthew, it talks about Jesus seeing people, right? Uh, the, The story we talked about a few weeks ago of the four friends who lower their friend down to Jesus while he's teaching. And it says when Jesus saw his friends and he saw their faith, right? When Jesus saw. The woman touches him, like we talked about last week, who is unclean, and she's healed. And Jesus has power go out of him. He says, Who touched me? And then he saw her and says, Your faith has made you well, right? Jesus sees people when he calls his disciples. He saw them fishing, he saw him sitting under a tree, right? When Jesus sees people, when Matthew emphasizes that Jesus is seeing people, He's not just talking about the physical act of seeing. He's talking about seeing them as, as who they are. He's talking about seeing them with his eternal eyes, right? As we talk about the upside-down kingdom, we're talking about seeing things differently, seeing things in a different light. People are, are made with this special image of God, right? That's how we start the Bible, is that God made man and woman different from everything else in his own image. We have this imago Dei, this image of God, and when Jesus sees us, he sees us the way he made us in his image. Um, C.S. Lewis has a quote where he says this, He's talking about people, and he says, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to, so we don't have to put a name to that, right? But think the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to, may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, spelled the British way. These are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and explain. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Jesus sees us in our eternal being, right? He sees us as being made for eternity. He sees us as having a nature of God and being bound for eternal glory or eternal damnation, right? Jesus sees the people and he has compassion on them. Um, you, C.S. Lewis here is, is talking about how nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these things that we see as maybe lasting and enduring beyond the life of a person, these are actually more temporary than a person. Because they're not eternal, and people are. I've been reading through some Jonathan Edwards, and uh, as as me and my friend Foster have been working through, (laughs) Jonathan Edwards, he talks about this existing more. Right, which is is kind of a strange concept, right? That 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 we have a greater share of existence than things like arts and culture and nations because we have an eternal share of existence, and that that God, who has an eternal past and an eternal future, has a greater share of existence than we do. Um, and I'm going to say something that's probably never been said before, but I want to explain this with a little bit of trigonometry. Okay, so. In trigonometry, you have functions, right? So there's this function that is like f of x equals 1 divided by x, or y equals 1 divided by x, right? And I I have a graph of it here. That's what that function looks like, okay? So what it means is that when y is 1, x is 1, and that's why on both of those lines, you know, there's a 1, 1 is where kind of that curve intersects. But then what happens is, when you graph a function, you're talking about what happens if X becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. What does it do to Y? Right? And so if you go along that line to the right, you see as X gets bigger and bigger and bigger, Y gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And when you get to kind of the pre-calculus or calculus level, then you start playing with the idea, well, what would happen if, X could actually be infinity, right? And so then you start creating these things like, as X approaches infinity, Y approaches zero, right? And in math, you never actually have the number infinity, right? But it's like, it's, it's portraying this concept and... We can get that off of there. That's distracting now, but uh, <laughs> it's it's portraying this concept that these these there's a relationship between x and y, but as this gets bigger and bigger and bigger, this gets smaller and smaller and smaller by comparison. And and if this could ever be infinite, this would actually become nothing, even though it does have real value. And, and my point is that. Our, our lives have real value. Our art has real value. Our culture has real value. But they also have a relationship to God. And they have a relationship to God's kingdom. And as the kingdom of God approaches infinity, which it is, and God actually achieves infinite presence an infinite power an infinite existence, that as we compare... Even something that has real value but is finite to the infinite, it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, right? And and my point is this, when we see people, are we seeing the infinite that God has put in them, or are we seeing some other aspect of their personality or what they do or how they relate to us that is finite, and that the more we see God in a person, the more those things become meaningless, the more those things approach zero, right? And so when God, when Jesus, God in the flesh is walking among us and he sees us and he sees the crowds, he sees the lame and he sees the broken and he sees the harassed and the helpless, he's seeing in them the infinite worth he created in them and the the things that they are struggling with, those or those identities or those things they're stuck in just become zero in light of what God has put in them, the image of God that has, is infinite. Are you guys with me on that? Yeah. Maybe some of you are asking, why should I care how Jesus sees people, right? But it's, it's because everything else becomes zero. Everything else doesn't matter, right? And it... It has value, right? Let me, let me put it this way. If you spend your time here, which is short, on your body, how you look, on acquiring things, on your career, those things have such a brief amount of existence in who you actually are and your eternity that, that compared to God, they become, they become meaningless. They become zero, right? If you, if you read the Old Testament... The word that keeps being used is vanity or meaningless, right? They're like chasing after the wind. What it means to see people is to see them as eternal beings destined for great glory or great horror, to see people as people, not to just see them as the person who makes your latte or who brings you the food you ordered or who brings you the food you didn't order. Or who cuts you off in traffic or who signs your paycheck. All of those things become zero as we see people as bearers of the image of God bound for eternal glory or eternal horror, right? And and if we want to see the world the way Jesus saw the world, if we want to see with eyes that Jesus saw... We need to be able to see the eternal and let all of those other things that evoke frustration or anger or bitterness or rivalry among us, we need to let them become as if they are nothing compared to the worth that Jesus has put inside of us. Um, My next point comes from this verse. They all should. When he saw the crowds, so he saw them, he had compassion for them, Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw them as having eternal value, he had compassion on them. One of the things you'll notice as you read through Matthew, as you read through the Gospels, you read through Jesus' life, you'll see over and over again, he saw this person, he saw this person, he saw this crowd, and then it's immediately followed by an emotional response. He saw him and he loved him. He saw them and how they were treated, you know. He saw the money changers and he became angry. He saw the rich young ruler and he loved him and told him he needed to give away all that he had to the poor. He saw the people that had faith and he, he forgave this young man's sin, right? He sees the people and he has compassion for them because seeing people with eternal perspective evokes an emotional response. We cannot see people the way God sees them and not feel for them the way God feels for them. Um, I was for a period of time the mayor of a city. For four years. I served one term as mayor. Now that city was Gold Bar, Washington, right? Uh, some of you may not know where Gold Bar is, but if you've ever driven to Stevens Pass, you've driven right through it. It's one one little. Uh, town. It's a very small town, 2,000 people or so. But it's bigger than most of the towns you've been mayor of, right? <laughs> um, it, wasn't, it wasn't hard to become the mayor of Goldbar, honestly. Um, the previous mayor had quit two years into her term. The person who was filling in as the temporary mayor was in his late 80s and did not want the job anymore. And in fact, when the, when the time came for people to file for the race, no one ran for mayor, and four of the five council seats were open, and three of them were vacant with no one running for them. And I read an article about how there was just this huge leadership vacuum in the city of Gobar, no one wanted the job. No one wanted to be involved in the leadership of the city. And it was because the city was, had three pending lawsuits against it, and there was a, a former disbarred attorney who lived in the city, whose mission it was, was to just destroy the city, and she wanted to just see it become unincorporated and bankrupted. And I learned that the history of this was that she had been very involved in the city, and 10 years earlier, there, there was a mayor who was a single mom, and this woman, and this woman was attending a city council meeting, and this mom had her two young kids, and it kind of put them in the other room in the office to, to sit there while they ran the city council meeting. And as kids tend to do, they got loud and unruly and obnoxious and they had to stop the meeting and the mayor had to go out and silence her kids and take care of them and then come back in and resume the meeting. So this woman sent her an email that told her that that was totally unprofessional and she couldn't get a babysitter for her kids. She should be a mother, not a mayor. And this mayor responded with some choice words and some emotion <laughs> And it turned into this feud between the two of them and they just kind of created this feud between the mayor and the citizen and she like made it her job, I'm going to destroy this city because of how you responded to me. And she had this method of destruction that was frustrating. She would, what she would do is she would write an email and just make something up like the mayor embezzled $10,000 from the city in May and send that email to the city. Okay, Then she would file a public records request and ask for copies of all emails sent to the city on that day. She would get a copy of all those emails, including the email she had sent, and then she would get on her blog where she was a reporter, and she would write, According to documents that I received from a public records request, the mayor has been accused of embezzling money from the city. And so she could generate her own sort of documentation and news stories and get people upset and against the mayor and this sort of thing. And so this is kind of what I walked into. And when I walked into this situation, she began to accuse me of, she attacked me, she attacked my family, she attacked my faith, she attacked my business, all of these sort of things. And I just, I have never related more to the Psalms that were like, God, break the teeth of my enemies, right? <laughs> But then I was, I was sitting in a, in a deposition one time talking with her and she had accused me of just like all of these horrible false things and we had the documentation and these papers laid out and she was denying that she'd ever said them and denying that she'd ever, and we, we had copies of the text messages and the emails, but, but as I looked at her, I saw that she truly believed she hadn't said and done those things. And all of a sudden just became aware that, that this is a person who is seriously hurt and seriously wounded and seriously bitter and is oppressed and is, is possessed with this anger and rage and desire to destroy. And all of a sudden, my pastor in our church, we, we just started praying for her and we prayed for the city and my heart was changed when I saw that in her. Right? All of a sudden it wasn't God take her down. It was it was God reach her, God help her, God save her, God love her, God help me to love her. Right? Seeing eternally leads to changed hearts and changed feelings. Sometimes we get so caught up in thinking that that the only thing that matters is what we do. And what we do matters. But but what Matters to God is, is, what are our motives? What is our heart? How do we feel about the things we are doing? Um, John Owen wrote, "The affections are the seed of all sincerity, the life and soul of everything that is good and praiseworthy." He's, he's saying that everything you do, if you're not putting your affection into it, if it isn't changing how you feel, if you're not feeling that way, it's not sincere, right?) Um, The Bible tells us what to do, right? Tells us how to live. But the Bible continually commands us how to feel as well. Um, Here's just a list of some biblical commands that tell us how to feel and how not to feel, right? We're not supposed to be covetous, afraid, anxious. We're not to have rage, malice, lust. We're not to love money, right? We are to be content. We are to have hope. We are to have zeal. We're to have sympathy. We're to have desire for the word. We're to delight in God. Right? The Bible over and over and over again tells us how to feel. Jesus pulls his disciples together in the upper room before he dies and he says, a new commandment I have for you, that you would love one another. The commandment he has for them is how to feel for one another. Right? We need God to open our eyes to see the upside down kingdom so that our hearts are moved and so that we feel the way that God is commanding us to feel a few weeks ago Joel was teaching and he said about the Pharisees they kept all the rules and they added extra ones to make sure the other rules didn't get broken but the sinister reality below the surface of their external lives was that deep down they didn't love God and people they wanted to rob God of his glory by earning people's praise doing the right stuff for the wrong reasons is wrong Right, Doing the right stuff for the wrong reasons is wrong. In Matthew 15, 8, Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrine the commands of men. Jesus is saying that they're honoring him, they're worshiping him, they're teaching commandments, but it's in vain. It's vanity. It's meaningless. It's zero Because their hearts are far from him. God wants our affections. He wants us to feel deeply the way he feels about people. Seeing with spiritual eyes leads to feeling true affection for God and his people. So number three, what what we should know. And now I've got to go quick because I, I made some promises to the children's leaders downstairs that I would finish quickly. My heart is with them. What did Jesus know? He saw the crowds and had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knows, God knows, that people who have not worshipped him, who have not rightfully accepted him, do not have a right relationship with him, are his enemies. Right? But when Jesus sees us, he doesn't see us as enemies to be conquered. He has compassion on us because he sees that there is an enemy that is harassing us, right? He sees that we are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Um, It's our hearts setting up rival affections that make us enemies of God, right? Uh, More, another quick Jonathan Edwards quote is, or I'll just summarize it. He, He says that whenever we have an affection that we set up in a place that God is the rightful king, it's like crowning a prince over a little territory in the middle of a kingdom that God is king over. That that by instantly by doing that, you're declaring a rebel territory or a rebel state, and you are now no longer in allegiance to the king because you've set up this little prince in this territory, right? It would be like if we just elected our governor of West Seattle and said, This is our governor, right? And just instantly you're in conflict with you know the city of Seattle with King County with the state of Washington because you've said we've rejected your whole form of government and we've set up our own little one right here. We're instantly at odds with, at enmity with, enemies of the system of things, right? And God is saying, I am the one who deserves all of your affection and all of your love and all of your focus. And as soon as you put that somewhere else, you've said in this area of my life, I have a different ruler, I have a different authority and that makes us enemies of God. Right? And Jesus sees that and he knows that, but he doesn't see us as enemies to be conquered. He sees us as enemies to be liberated. Right? Jesus didn't come to conquer the people that were far from them. He came to set them free, to rescue them, to bring them into the upside down kingdom because he had compassion on them, because he saw that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, Jesus knew his Bible pretty well. <laughs> Numbers twenty seven seventeen says this and Moses is about to die, he's praying with God, and God says, Let the let Moses is saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that don't have a shepherd. They were supposed to have a shepherd. God's people are supposed to have someone who leads them out and brings them in, who helps bring them to the foot of God, who helps convict them of their sin, right? And Joshua was that man, and Joshua leads them as their shepherd. And then when Joshua dies, what happens? We have the book of Judges, which is very dark and very bad time for the people of Israel. A very bad time for the people of Israel, right? And the the refrain that's repeated over and over and over and over again in Judges is that the people did whatever was good in their own eyes because they became as sheep without a shepherd, right? And and here's Jesus coming and he's going, these are my people who were supposed to have a shepherd leading them. And they've wandered off and followed either wrong shepherds in their idols or they've just said, I don't want any shepherd and they've gone off by their own, right? Right? Proverbs says that a fool does what is right in his own eyes. We are made in God's image, but we are not God's. And that was Adam and Eve's issue, is that they were told you can be like God. You can choose for yourself what's right and wrong. And we, we want to grasp at being God of our own lives and wander off. And then we don't have a shepherd, and we're like lost sheep. Joel sent me a picture ...of a sheep that was lost in Australia for five years. Do we have that? There it is. That sheep was lost for five years. That's a 98-pound sheep with 85 pounds of wool on it. And they said that that sheep was probably two or three weeks away from dying... ...when they found it, because its coat had gotten so big... ...it was trapping all of the sheep's urine inside of it... ...and it was burning off the skin right? And, and that's, that's graphic. <laughs> but, but think about that. I mean, think about that analogy of a lost sheep without a shepherd and the sheep going, no one tells me where to go. No one gives me a haircut. I'm free to do whatever I want and grow this luxurious coat. And inside the filthiness of the sheep is eating away at its own skin and killing it. That's what happens when we're lost sheep, right? Right? Is, is here we are declaring, I can do whatever I want, don't give me your rules, don't tell me how to live, I'll decide what's right and wrong, and that eats away at us and is killing us from the inside, right? We need a shepherd to shave that off of us, to make us lie down when we need to lie down, to lead us to water and make us drink when we need to drink. Jesus Jesus knew that the true enemy was the enemy that's harassing us, that the people were helpless to overcome the power of Satan, sin, and death. Jesus knew that, that while we were enemies of God, we were not the enemy to be conquered, that Satan, sin, and death were the enemy to be conquered, and we were the enemy to be liberated, to be rescued. So what did he tell us to do? He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the, labors, the laborers are few. Therefore, get to work. Therefore, go out and cast out demons and heal people. No. He said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Right? We, we have this tendency to put the cart before the horse in following Jesus' instructions, right? We go, yes, Jesus, I want to do it for you. I'm going to go out into the harvest, and then when things go wrong, I'll resort to prayer. Prayer becomes a last resort. Have you ever heard anyone say, there's nothing I can do, I have nothing left to do except pray, right? And Jesus is saying prayer is a first resort, not a last resort. We are called, therefore, pray earnestly that God would send out the workers, right? And then he does. I'm going to steal the next verse, which is supposed to be in Pastor David's sermon next week. But chapter 10, verse 1 says this, and he called to him his 12 disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Jesus is going to wage war. He's sending his disciples out to liberate the people from the enemies of Satan, sin, and death. Right? Right? But it's in response to, first, pray that God would send them out, right? They're going out with prayer covering. They're going out with the prayers, the earnest prayers, the heartfelt prayers that God would send out people. We need to pray, and we're, we're going to do that here in just a minute. I want to see God heal. I want to see people healed. I want to see people free from financial debt. I want to see sight restored. I want to see people discover and use spiritual gifts from the kingdom of God. But more than that, I want and we should want as a church to see people that pray earnestly. That we become a community that is known for our earnest dedication to prayer. That, that when, when I get up here and say, I need more kids volunteers, which I do, <laughs> had to, the, the first thing we do is we go, we need to pray that God would send more kids volunteers. We need to pray for the volunteers we have, that they would feel blessed by serving and that they would not burn out and be exhausted by watching the kids, right? It's When, when we're asking for people, for the choir team, who wants to sing? Who wants to pray that there would be people who want to sing? right our first resort needs to be to pray that god would move in the hearts of people that we would have authentic hearts that are moved to then do the work that god has called us to do okay i'm i'm i've got i've got to end here to keep my word <laughs> i i told you what i would say i said it now i'm going to say what i said one we need our eyes to be open to see Things and people the way God sees things and people with an eternal view. Right? We need to we need to see past the zero and see the infinity that is in people that God has put into our hearts. When we see people like that, we need to be moved to have affection for them and to feel compassion the way God felt compassion, so that our actions are honest and true and authentic. We need to know that our real enemies are not other people. Our real enemies are Satan and death and the power of destroying life and that we have a God that conquered all of those. And then what we need to do is we need to pray as a first resort. We need to be brought to our knees by that and pray that God would send us out. This is what it means to be disciples. Um... Hmm. i want i want to close with ephesians 118 as we think about seeing the world the way jesus sees it about having spiritual eyes that awaken the affections of our heart and stir us to battle right when jesus saw the people they were harassed and helpless because it was before he died and rose again When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he defeated the power of Satan's sin and death. So we are still harassed, but we aren't helpless anymore because of the power that Jesus gave to us through his spirit in new life when we believe in him. And so listen, listen to Paul's prayer. He says, I want you to have, that you would be having the eyes of your hearts enlightened right he's not talking about physical hearts and he's not talking about our physical hearts having their own physical eyes he's talking about spiritually being able to see so that our affections are stirred right that we would see that we would feel having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you would know see feel know Eyes of your hearts in line that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come. Jesus defeated every real enemy for eternity so that we are no longer helpless. And we're gonna, we're gonna respond to that now. And I just pray that as we respond by taking of communion, if you're a believer, and we, we take the communion to represent his body and his blood and that power that no longer makes us helpless, that you can come back under the authority and rule of a good shepherd the way he designed us to. And as we do that and we respond in worship through music, I'm just praying that as we, as we go today that we would seal That we we would see, that we would feel, that we would know, and that we would be drawn to pray for the upside-down kingdom to be revealed, that we would see that in each other, that we would see that in our church, that we would see that in our community, and that we would evoke real affection, compassion, and that we would know that our enemy is not those people. (laughs) Our enemy is who is harassing those people, and he has already been defeated. Let's pray. God, I just, I thank you. I thank you that you won this victory, God. You won the battle. You have defeated Satan, sin, and death. And we no longer are helpless, God. You have helped us. And God, I pray today, if there is anyone here that still feels helpless, that still feels harassed, that still feels burdened by all of this extra weight of living as their own God. God, would you just bring them to you? Would you just, would you send your spirit, God? Would you change our hearts? Would you give us eyes to our hearts that would be open to the reality of what you have done and put eternity in front of us? day in and day out, as we come in and as we go out. We thank you for everything that you did. We thank you that you had compassion on us, that you loved us, that you don't see us as enemies to be conquered. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.